last Sunday I mentioned, uh, we're working through forgiveness, and last Sunday I mentioned that we would do two weeks looking at forgiveness uh, and repentance between us and the Lord, and then we'd spend two weeks looking at how we do that among one another. And uh, we're at change one, we're going to add a week. Uh, So uh, what I want to do this morning is break up the notion of repentance. (coughs) Excuse me, stretch it out a little bit so that we can examine a little, a few more things in there. There were some things that were going to get left out that I just thought, that was big things. So, so uh, we're going to do two weeks on repentance. This morning, we're going to talk about the first half of like the journey on the way towards repentance. So, what works together for our good that would lead us to the moment of repentance? I want us to focus on that. And then I want us uh, to also dwell or ask questions about how do we reconcile consequences in this life, consequences for our sin, in light of the fact that we have forgiveness? How do the two sit beside one another? Because consequences can be a squirrely thing. And, and as can understanding our sin, I'll give you uh, some examples from our own home. Our home gets a lot of practice in the work of forgiveness and repentance. And uh, I'm reminded of how, how difficult it is as a child of God to understand um, my actions. Let me, let me just tell you. We, we have a, a laundry room at our house. And we uh, put in, where there was a window, we removed some stone. And we put in an antique glass pane door. It's a really nice door. Looks really cool. It was probably a mistake because we never use it. But it looks good. And uh, not too long ago, one of our children went into the laundry room to take off their shoes, and they just kind of flicked them off their feet. You know how that kids can do that? They just do that. So they do the flicking, and the shoe does the flying, and it hits this glass, antique glass pane door, right through one of the panes. And in our home, as I think with most, when children break glass, it's a big deal. I mean, for the children, that sits in their mind as a big no-no. So the hush was heard around the world. And, you know, the, and there, you know, in our home, there's always somebody who's in the season of, like, the appointed tattletale. So for them, they're like, oh, you wait all your life for a moment like this, you know, like a siren, mom. The siren's going off, and the perpetrator's already in tears because he thinks he's going to be destroyed. And, and I have a very vague recollection of the moments that I followed after, which means maybe I've blotted it out of memory, but I'm, I'm not, it's not my disposition or my intent to act, make you think that we behaved well as parents initially because it was February and cold. But... When things settle down, it's apparent you realize <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of sin happening there. It was a mistake, right? Flick the shoe off, shoe goes flying, goes through the window. A little bit sloppy, sure. A little bit impetuous, maybe. But s- wicked sinner. Like there's not a deep root sin that we have to excavate out of the heart of the child for that. And so the reality was, is forgiveness ultimately, I mean, there was the flash in the pan moment, the what'd you do, 
But then, uh, you know, once things settle down, actually forgiveness, reconciliation, those were really easy things to do there. Even though to the child, that was a big, big deal. As a parent, when things settle down, you're like, really, it's, it's work. You know, hey, pick up the glass. Those were the consequences. Pick up the glass. Maybe there was something else. It was a mistake, right? Versus the lie in our home. So all of our children have gone through that season where they have to explore the power of the lie. And to the child, the lie seems like a small thing. It's not like breaking a glass window pane. But to the parent, it's different. Because the lie violates relationship. Right? The lie makes me wonder, do I know this child? Has he burned the bridge? So the strange thing is, what seems, I mean, we're children of God, right? What seems sometimes big in our minds, the Lord is mistake. Let's keep going. Then there's things that show up in our lives that to us seem small, but there's a root. There's a root down beneath that's big that would make us do something to the Holy Father that is really unimaginable. And those are the times when there's consequences and it's difficult. But right, the Lord still forgives. Just like we, we, when a child lies, there's consequences over here for all sorts of reasons. We want to discipline him so that he learns and thwarts him from the inclination of lying in the future. We want to try to expose the weight of his sin. And one of the ways you expose the weight of a mistake is by doling out consequences. We want the home to feel just. So we don't want the children in the home to feel like, well, what, you didn't do anything to him. What? Remember when I lied? So there's all sorts of things going into the consequences. But the truth of the matter is, uh, there still is forgiveness. The power of forgiveness with God as within a home is the restoration of relationship. Not the absence of consequence. So my son knowing that I love him, and that he's still my son, and that even though he lied, and has put distance between us, it's the desire of his father and mother to close that distance back. It's our job to come to him and, and call it out and then show them away. And so in a bizarre, sometimes confusing way, forgiveness lives right inside of the consequences of, of our mistakes in life. And this morning, I think we're going to see that. If you'll turn to Second Samuel chapter 12, <clears throat> there's a good example of uh, sin and consequence in the midst of forgiveness. This is the moment, not, not the moment, this is the chapter after David and Bathsheba. <clears throat> if you're new to the word or you're new to the story of God, King David was a very prominent king. Um, he had a heart after God's. So he was friends, he was a friend of God. He's the pattern of a good king, uh, and Christ will ultimately be born out of David's line. And Christ is a better David, but, David, but he's a type, David's a type of Christ. Really good. Well, David was a great king, but there was a period, a season in his life where something was very wrong. And in that season, you know, the, the tip-off is in the beginning of the chapter. It says that during the season when kings go to war, David was at home which is a tip-off. Well, why isn't he at war like a good king? Why is he on furlough? 
But he's at home. All of the soldiers, all of the real soldiers are off doing the work. He's at home. <clears throat> he looks out one day. He sees a beautiful woman bathing on, on the roof of her home. And he takes her for himself. And she is the wife of a very noble soldier named Uriah. And he takes Uriah's wife for himself. Through Uriah, he can, a child is conceived. And now they're really in trouble because now there's evidence of the sin. By the way, which shows you that David's goal in the first place was just to take something. So David, uh, through some shenanigans, dark and sinful shenanigans, ends up just, it snowballs, and he ends up being responsible for the death of Uriah. He plots for the murder of Uriah. Now, we know that David repents. When we sing, Create in Me a Clean Heart, that was sent from David's psalm of repentance about Bathsheba. We know he repents. We know the Lord receives him. We know there's forgiveness. We know there's restoration. We know all of those things. We know David goes on to do many good things or write many great psalms. But he didn't do it right away. Uriah dies. Bathsheba goes through the traditional mourning of Uriah. And then David marries her, takes her in the house. She gives birth to a son. All of that happens before he ever repents. That's like a while. It's called a year. And then his repentance was not self-initiated. Just like the song we sing, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God sends a man to bring repentance to David. And that's the story here this morning. Nathan. Nathan goes to David. Let me read the first seven verses of Second Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. I want to stop there and note that up until this point, up until verse seven, David does not see his sin. He does not see his sin. Which you might think to yourself, how is it possible? And by the way, David is a man after God's own heart. David knows the Lord. Many of the Psalms that we read were written before this point with David in the desert being hunted by Saul. Call David a better Christian than you are. 
It's a good starting point. David does not see his sin. How can that be possible? He committed adultery. And he murdered somebody. How can he not see his sin? Well, I don't know exactly how David can't see his sin. I can't presume to know the ways he has dealt with them. But I will say this. It's important to appreciate that it is often our way to overlook our sin. In fact, it, sin is, is typically, not, it's not irrational, it's rational and reasoned, and it is almost, just, almost always justified in our minds. We almost always have a good reason for why we sin. We've decided internally that we have something coming to us, that we have just desserts, or that we've been appropriately scarred, or we're such a victim that we have the right to respond in a certain way, almost... It's amazing the amount of sin that exists in our own life. You get cut off on the highway, you bear down on the horn because of what they did. That's your justification. Or you have sins like maybe David goes, well, I'm not guilty of murder. I didn't do it. The Ammonites did it, if you want to be clear. I didn't shoot. I wasn't even there. So we have this way of justifying sin by way of putting distance between us and the action as though we had no role to play in sin. You think it's hard to believe that one could miss such graphic sins as this, but we've seen it. I mean, don't I have a right to be happy? I've heard that. Multiple times, don't I have a right to be happy? Doesn't God want me to be happy? That's the preamble to some really terrible decisions. Do you know how long it is since she slept with me? That is the preamble to some very terrible decisions. We have these things. Paul the Apostle missed his sin. Paul the Apostle was complicit with the murder of the saints of God, and he did not see it. Why is that? This is the reason. It's because the real sin is not murder and adultery. The real sin is far deeper. It's far deeper in the soul of David. And that sin is doing all sorts of things. It, re- it manifests itself as adultery. And it manifests itself as murder. And it also manifests itself as blindness to the sin itself. The real sin is happening far deeper. Do you notice the parable? Is the parable about adultery or is the parable about murder? Neither. The parable has nothing to do with it. The parable is about arrogance and pride and insensitivity. The parable is a message to a king gone bad is what it is. It's a message to a man who's now placed himself above other humans as though he actually is more than them. It is a message to somebody who no longer regards the fact that God is his king but rather sees himself as above the law. That is the root sin in David's life. And the root sin 
shows up in all sorts of ways. You realize that one root sin, that haughty arrogance of David that would scorn God and man, that produces all sorts of things to include blindness to his own actions. God wants to show us that about ourselves. All the sins you have excuses for, God wants to go deeper and expose what's driving it. That's his goal. That's why he sent Nathan. Do you ever find yourself saying, why do I come to the Lord to say I'm sorry again? Like I have this thing, this sin, and the repetition of it is frustrating. I think I confess it, but it shows up again. You're trapped in the disappointment of the repetition. Well, it's likely, now I'm not, it's not my heart to like diagnose you from the pulpit, so I'm just trying to offer ways of thinking but often the case is, is that we are confessing the fruits of the tree, the fruits of sin, rather than dealing with what is feeding the tree in the first place. In other words, we prune back the branches, like we're disappointed that the sinful fruit shows up, so we prune back the branches as though that's gonna change, alter the fruit of the tree. It might actually make room for a healthier crop of the same sin. God wants to expose in us what's feeding the tree in the first place. He says it in the positive way. In John, he says, remain in me and bear fruit. Right? In other words, I'll know you by your fruit and remain in me. May Christ be our root so that we would expect the fruit of God, the fruit of the Spirit. That's the positive way of this teaching. The negative way of this teaching is, is the more and more that we feed on the things of the flesh, the more we should expect these fruits to show up. And when, by the time they're hanging on the tree, we have all sorts of reasons as to why they're there because the root of sin has clouded our judgment even. Now you may say to yourself, well, David had Nathan. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, well, we have a Nathan. It's called the Holy Spirit. God has sent us a Nathan, and it is a word of the Holy Spirit. Now, I say, I want to say that while at the same time encouraging a naturally private community of Christians that there really is little replacement for a Christian friend who's willing to say a word to you. In other words, you'd say, well, I have the Spirit. And the Spirit might say, well, I sent you a friend. I, I guess what I'm saying is, is there's real, real Christian friendship. The kind of Christian friendship where you can see where a brother or sister is going wrong, you can say it, not, not only have the courage to say it, but say it in the dialect that they can maybe hear it. Point out, notice David cannot see his root sin. He's in need of someone else to see his root sin and to point it out to him. And I, I just want to offer up that 
the Holy Spirit is now in us and brings to us the, the conviction of sin alongside of the comfort of Christ. So it's in us, but the Lord uses the, the, the church. The miracle of God is being done through the church. And I'm a little hard-pressed to imagine a hyper-privatized Christian who won't share anything. I'm, I'm hard to imagine the Holy Spirit cashing in a lot on that. So you won't tell anybody anything you've ever done wrong. You won't expose yourself to anyone. <laughs> that's, your, that's the sin. I, you know, we want to, we want to, I don't doubt, we're, we want the perfection of God. We're, a, our kind of folk are, we want to look perfect on the way there. And we want to remodel the kitchen and yet have it still look good. It, that just doesn't happen. The Lord first exposes the root sin, and then he begins to make the account, okay? So after going, okay, this is just, if you want to under, appreciate better in your own life and for others, the path towards genuine repentance, number one would be exposure of the real problem, okay? So Nathan comes in and exposes the real problem. Now he begins to move to accounting for the size the size of the problem. Well, what is making broader account for, the, for David what he's actually done wrong here? The, the scope of it, the weight of it. Listen to what he does. I just want to read seven and eight for now, and then we'll, we'll read nine in a second. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have done to you as much more. The first thing the Lord does in order to build the scope is to remind us what he's done for us. David, I anointed you. I saved you. I've blessed you. And you know, you know, David, I would have blessed you all the more. It wasn't like you were at the limit of my blessing. I was blessing you and in the midst of blessing you for future blessing. What did you not have from me, David, that is worthy of desire? Like if we're going to really repent before the Lord, that, that matters. What has God given me? It's not, he didn't just anoint the king, he's anointed his saints. You've been anointed. You've been saved, you've been blessed, and you would have been blessed much more. Right? You're in the midst of blessing on the way to more blessing. We begin to think we, you know, one of the ways we justify sin is the fact that we think we've done all the work or we're dealing with things that we actually own. So then we can do with them what we want. You know, especially hard workers, I make the money, I do this, right? So much sin comes out of that sense of ownership. This cauterizes that. This burns it to say, stop talking about what you've done. I anointed you, I saved you, I blessed you. I think of a child, you know, we can be like a child in the backyard with a sandcastle. Look what I made. Like, I don't think God's trying to deny that you've made your sandcastle. I'm just saying, he's saying, well, he adopted you, brought you to your house, put you in the backyard, built the sandbox and poured sand in it. So everything you've done has been inside his blessing. 
What do you really own? After he accounts for what, after the Lord accounts for what he's done for David, now root sin shown, what God's done for us is shown, and now and only now, right, is it is it time to say, and here's what you actually did, right? Now I don't know, <clears throat> starting in verse nine, I don't know if he's going to say there's four sins, four distinct ways that this showed up, or if I think more to the case is the first one is going to be the thematic sin, the big sin, and the other three are going to be the way it just manifested itself. So nine, in the form of a question, is the big one. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? <clears throat> That's what David's done. You might say, well, David, David didn't despise the Lord, he despised Uriah. He looked down on Bathsheba. The Lord would say, well, I, I gave laws to prevent that from happening because I love Uriah and I love Bathsheba. You, in other words, you cannot violate someone else without offending God because God's law cares for that person. God cares for all people. So whenever we, across our life, cut someone short or off or, or take something for ourselves, that ultimately is, is a violation between us and God. This is why in Psalm 51, David can say to you and you only have I sinned. He's not saying Uriah doesn't matter. He's saying in the scope of what God's done for me and in the compass of his law, I am an offender of God. So number one, or the heading is, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in your sight? And then he says, he gives us three things, right? We only ever think of two. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite, murder, okay, with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, okay? <clears throat> That's two. And then there's three. And you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. It's interesting. We think of murder and adultery. The Lord, the Lord has perfect insight into our right doing and our wrongdoing. And he says, not only has he committed murder and done adultery, but the, what the Lord says is, you, you use the Ammonites to do your bidding. There's a, there's a way that the enemies of God were complicit in the acts of David. This brief moment in time, you were more friends with the Ammonites than you were with me, David. To do something wicked. And I count that against you also. The path to repentance is to be shown our root sin. And we can, we can really repent of the wrong sins, of, of the fruit, and, and not get in much place. But to really dig down, Lord, uncover in my life the motivation. Why am I like this? Not, why did I do that? Because I sure don't want to do that again. Not that. Father, what do I not believe about you that would inspire me in that direction? How do I not believe you're enough for me that would send me off in that direction. So to be shown of our root sin and then to be reminded of what God's done for us, right? That helps put us on our knees. And Well, this is what I've done for you, my child. And then this accounting of this is actually what I'm guilty of, this, this careful accounting right here. I think those are important. 
I don't, that's not necessarily as a recipe. I'm saying these are important principles to make us not cheap in the way we come to the Lord. And then we get to the 10th verse. Here's the list of consequences. Let me read 10 to 15. Now after the sword, <clears throat> so he's given him his sins and he says in verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So you've despised God and man. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went out to his house. Every one of those consequences comes true, by the way. The Lord wasn't just talking. And in the middle of those, well, I know the consequences are difficult. And I got to tell you, I, I can't, I cannot unthread the consequences for you and explain why exactly God said, I, for this season of my life, I'm done putting God on trial. You know, God's, God's always proven himself good and right and loving. In my life and in scripture as I come to know it, I go, oh, he's good. Oh, he's right. Oh, he's loving. So I get to places I don't understand what he did and I remember who he is. So I can't unthread some of the difficulty. I imagine some of you are wrestling with the consequences themselves. Oftentimes consequences are difficult to understand and fully difficult to reconcile. What I want to say is there are consequences to his sins and yet in the midst of the consequences, there's grace and forgiveness. Did you see it? In the middle of the consequences, I mean literally, literally in this text it's in the middle of the consequences, but it's metaphorical too. But right in the middle, David comes to this, ah, oh, I've sinned. Like the, the light bulb comes on. To which Nathan does what? God knows David and he hasn't left you. And you're not going to die for this. I mean, David knows the law of God. Remember he said in the end about the parable? That man should die, which was a strong word, but then he gives the law and he should repay fourfold for the lamb he took. That's the law. He's quoting the law. The restoration of stolen goods. So David knows the law. What's the penalty for murder? How many bulls do you, how many turtle doves and bulls do you have to bring to the temple to account for murder? There is no accounting for murder. There's no sacrifice for murder. What about adultery? There's no sacrifice for adultery. In other words, I just want you to appreciate there is forgiveness here. There's profound forgiveness here. God is telling David two things. I'm not leaving you, nor are you paying the penalty, the real penalty for your sin. Just like with us, we're going to do things wrong and experience consequences. Throw a shoe through the glass that we think is really bad. The Lord's going to come to us and go, you're still my son. Not that big of a deal. 
right? And then other things that we don't think are so small until they're exposed in our life. And we realize, oh my gosh, Lord, I have scorned you among others. And there, what the Lord's going to do is give us forgiveness. Be at peace. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I am with you. And you will not perish for this. But, consequence. I mean, Christian, forgiveness does not mean the absence of consequence. Forgiveness means the restoration of relationship with God and prevailing over the eternal consequence of sin. The eternal consequence of sin is that David would be forever separated from a holy God for even a triviality, not to mention these major sins, to which God's coming to him saying, look, I will not separate myself from you. I will remain with you. I will be your God, and you will not perish for this. You will not be eternally separated from me. But know this, you've made a mess And you've made a mess in a world that needs to know who I am. I don't know, I I don't know why God did these specific consequences. You know, I do know God brought his restoration in all of this. He did take the first child of David and Bathsheba, but he restored to them another child. That child was named Solomon who became the king. So there's consequences, and then there's restoration in those consequences. Incidentally, out of Solomon and David came Jesus. And Bathsheba's name is in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew 1, one of four women. And there's restoration. This is where God, this God just proves he doesn't leave us, right? You have my forgiveness, There's consequences, but I'm with you, and out of these consequences, I'll remain with you and tell a story. So why consequences? What do they do? Well, for one, consequences serve to thwart us from ever doing it again, right? Sometimes you just got to let the kids stick the knife in the outlet. I'm not recommending it. I'm saying it's non-fatal. Like if you went to Europe, it's a little different. A little different voltage. But here, you can they make it and they'll learn, right? Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. Touch the stove. Right? It's not going to burn his arm off. I mean, there's a sense, okay? I'm being overly harsh, right? A little crash, a little raw. But still, we underst- appreciate the value of consequences, So there's one reason for consequences. In other words, I want you to see those consequences are for your good, not for your harm. Another reason for consequences. Just, God, others have seen it, and now they're questioning the Lord. Do you really think that nobody knew the story of David and Bathsheba in Israel? Do we really think that? He wrote a letter to send to the front of the battle saying, make sure Uriah doesn't come back. As, do, as soon as the mourning is over for Uriah, he has a wedding ceremony, or not a wedding ceremony, he's married to Bathsheba, and he's raising the child of Bathsheba as his own son. I mean, you would have to be pretty dumb to put all that together. 
If I were in the court of David and my wife was real attractive, I would look for a new job. I'd wonder, well, what kind of king is this? Does he just take what he wants? I mean, I just want to say, God has to save, God will save his name. Despite what we do, God will make his name great. And there's another good cause for consequence. May our prayer be, Lord, make your name great despite what I do. Because it would be wrong for the subjects of Israel to think that even the the king is not beneath the law of God. That is a cancer on a people. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Sometimes just discipline. I don't mean even in the negative sense. Just we need to work on this. We need to work on this together. So here's a constant reminder of our need to work on it. Sometimes that discipline, which is entirely well-meaning, is seen by us as harsh consequence. Give you a little story, personal story. I had so I went to pilot training in my early twenties. Since fifth grade, I wanted to fly the A ten. Go to pilot training. Things are going well. There's a tradition in pilot training. It's called cooperate to graduate, which is called which is cheating. You cheat. Another saying in pilot training: if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. We had a lot of academic tests. You know, I mean, the standard in pilot training, if there's 600 questions throughout pilot training, the guy who gets the academic award missed one of 600. That's the standard. So it was, it's a very competitive environment of kind of overachieving crowd. And there's, alongside of that competitiveness, is this culture of cooperate to graduate. So some tests, you sit at a desk and you have a proctor. That's where somebody misses one. On the other tests, your IP, your instructors come in, they put the test, the quiz on the table, and they walk out and they say, I'll be back in 15 minutes, wink, wink, and I'll knock twice. Go. It's very awkward. It's very awkward for me as a, as a believer, um, young believer. What do I do? And there were a few other, uh, I was grateful that I was not alone in the faith in, in pilot training, so there were a few other guys in my group, and we tried to sit in our own corners, so there, you know, we'd take our own quiz, do our own thing, but try to do it without being judgmental and all, you know, lame. You understand, you know, you don't want to be pushing people out, it's very real. And so throughout all of pilot training, I felt like I'd taken the high road. I was better than those guys as far as the effort I took. You know, and then when we had other big tests or something, you could go down to Kinko's and you could pay 15 bucks and they'd print out every test from pilot training since 1901 or since the Wright brothers, 1903. I mean, they had it all. And there was just, you know, people would use them to study. Not 1A, 2B, but what are the kinds of questions? So it got very gray and very confusing because everywhere you go, you had no idea, is this a study guide or is this a study guide? You didn't know. And so in all of that, <clears throat> I, thought, I thought for myself I did really, really well, better than anyone had ever done. At the very last test, Uh, I lived in the gray. And I did well in pilot training. 
really well. This is going well for me. And I turned my pubs in after my, check, my last check ride. I mean, I was done. All my tests were done. It was the last check ride. I was sitting, and in my pubs were my study guides. And I almost had to call my mom and dad and say, don't come down to Mississippi. I'm not going to be a pilot. Like, whoa. Oh, there were so many consequences that fell on me that day. There were all these awards you get in pilot training. Our class did not get a single award. And I tell you, I think back to pilot training, and I don't think of, I think of that more than any other experience in pilot training. That's what I think of, is the shame I had to endure. The fact that my mother and my father, and my mother-in-law and my father-in-law were traveling a thousand miles, they had bought plane tickets, there's a very good chance I was going to be a civil engineer. Not a pilot. Now, I got to fly, uh, but there was a fair degree of scorn. But you know, this is what the Lord showed me. Oh, because I can tell you, I never want to go back to that moment. I mean, worst, one of the worst moments of my life where to be seen as a dishonorable person hurts. And I'll say, the message of God was, my children take the high road. That's what I walk away with, and for that I'm grateful. Now I know, God's children take the high road. We're different, you and I. The mark of Christ is on us, which means we carry his name. So we take the high road which means we do not play in the gray. And if the Lord needs to bring consequences when we do to salvage his name out of our mess to his glory and honor, at the end of the day, he's disciplined me because he loves me. That's what he wants to do. You know, you might call this, you might look at this and say, this is a bad day, this is David's worst day. I don't think it's David's worst day. I think it was a hard day, but it's not his worst day. God came to him on this day. that's a good day in my book. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. That's a good day for mankind. We celebrate the day, the incarnation of Christ at Christmas. That was a world in rebellion that God sent a word to of confession and repentance. That's a good day. You know what a bad day is? A bad day is when God stops talking to you. That's a bad day. When God goes silent, it's a very bad day. May we hear him. May we hear him and respond. Let's pray. Lord, your kindness leads us to repentance. You say that. Your son gives us forgiveness. You promise that. You stand with us in hardship. You tell us that. Lord, though you have done nothing wrong, took all of our wrongdoing on your shoulders. That is your promise, Lord, and you've done it. I pray, Lord, that we, each to the individual, Lord, might be more open before you. Why are we not like you? What in us is doing these things? Lord, show us the scope and compass of your mercy and the depth of our sin so that we might say we have sinned against the Lord. And repent me being new. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stay with me, please, and I'll close this in prayer. God bless you on the roads.
be safe. I wish I could say go Eagles <laughs> next year. May the Lord bless us and keep us. Let his face shine upon us. May his countenance be with us. His grace be on us. And may the spirit like Nathan come to us and salvage what the Lord may out of our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.